Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One rookie mistake that we made, we didn't even think to check this, is that we were basically across from the dump station. <laughs> yeah, and we learned a lot about the dump station on, on that visit. Matter of fact, uh, you know, we, we were a little put out that we were so close to the dump station. And after a while, we just embraced it. We set up our lawn chairs facing the dump station. I think we got a beer or or three uh, and just sat there and critiqued uh, the dumpers as they came through. And I got to say, there there's a wide range of skill that you'll see at the dump station when you've seen, you know, 30 RVs come by and right. do their business. Right. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about a wide variety of travel-related topics, not just the national parks, but also road trips, camping, outdoor gear, and pretty much whatever anyone wants to ask us. Today, we're talking about some towns in the West that would make a great longer-term home base for exploring the parks. Plus, we'll share our favorite national park campgrounds. We'll also give some suggestions about a listener's upcoming California desert road trip itinerary and discuss three things we always do when researching our park trips. All this plus a product review and much more coming up next. Welcome everybody to a new episode before we get into our mailbag questions, we wanted to talk about a really cool thing that happened to us the other day. You know, probably one of the most spectacular wildlife encounters we have ever witnessed, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and we were really glad to be inside our truck <laughs> when it happened. <laughs> That's right. So we were on a 12-day road trip through a lot of states. We first stopped in Yosemite's high country, and then we made our way through Nevada and up through Idaho. And, you know, we left the last couple of days open because we weren't sure what the weather was going to be and if places were going to be smoky. So we didn't have those last couple of days figured out, but... Like a magnet, <laughs> we went to Yellowstone. <laughs> Even though we've been there so many times, we always, always end up back in Yellowstone. Right. The whole Grand Teton Yellowstone area is, if you're even close to it, you got to go visit it, even if it's just a drive through. But we were very fortunate, as we tell people often, that we got some lodging that's normally really hard to get, but we got reservations at the last minute at a couple of cool places just by catching cancellations. Yes, for the first time, we stayed at the Old Faithful Lodge in one of their cabins, and that was really cute. We'd never stayed there before. And then the second night, we were able to get a room in the Old House section of Old Faithful Inn, which is one of our favorite places to stay. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we always ask for the same room, mm -hmm. which 
no one else asks for. They always have an odd look on their face when we ask for that room because, well, I mean, the windows don't shut all the way for what? <laughs> it's a little drafty. <laughs> it's a little drafty. And you're right there uh, pretty much almost in the parking lot. So there's a lot of people that walk by your room, which we think is fun because you're in the mix. The other thing is when the sun goes down, <laughs> you have to turn the lights off in the room to change your clothes because there's just sheer curtains and everyone can see you from from pretty far away. Right. And the bathroom's down the hall. But besides, but, all, besides that, all that, we love it. It's great. I don't know. It's such a cozy room. We love staying in the old house section because it's so authentic. And anyway, we were lucky. We got a room there. Everything was great. And then the day we left, as we are driving from the Old Faithful area up to, we're going to head out through West Yellowstone and make our way up through Montana. So we're going up to the Madison Junction. We were driving through a spot where all of a sudden there were bison in the road. And the reason they were in the road was because along one side of the road, the river was right there. And on the other side of the road, there was a really, really steep hillside going up. Yeah, there's a stretch right there by the Firehole River. It's maybe two or three miles long. And these bison were meandering up the road and they got caught in traffic. And there were rangers out there trying to redirect them to a, a more open area, but they, they were going the direction they wanted to go. So we sat in traffic just crawling along for about an hour as the bison were all meandering in and around our cars. Uh, and every now and then they would be off the side of the road so we could you know, drive another hundred feet and then they would come back. All of a sudden the bison decided they had had enough <laughs> and something caused them to all turn 180 degrees and basically stampede past the line of cars that were heading in the north direction. We were all parked. And what was really cool about this too is the cars coming towards us in the opposite direction had been stopped way back by the rangers. So there were no cars, you know, in the left lane. There was only our row in the right lane. And all of a sudden, they stampeded towards us and they were running on both sides of our car. So I took a video out my window and Matt took a video out his window and they are literally running right next to the truck. They're snorting and grunting. And we estimated somewhere between one and 200 bison in the stampede. They just kept coming. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty awesome sight. One even bumped our truck. It's a little one. It did, didn't have big horns. So, I, But I did get out to see if it scratched. Right. I was worried they were going to take out the side mirrors that were sticking out there. Yeah, I wasn't going to reach out and, no. and pull the side mirror in. I just kind of froze there. We were pretty uh, secure in our truck and, and didn't move, but it, it was cool. It was amazing to see. Never, ever have we seen that many bison that close to our truck. Also in this particular area of the park, because usually our bison sightings are all in Lamar Valley. So this was so, so cool. And for those of you who follow us on Instagram, we posted a video of this. So you might have seen that. And if you haven't, uh, you could go to our Instagram account at Matt and Karen Smith and check out the video. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah, so that was exciting about our trip. You know, Karen, the other exciting thing that happened to us on the trip, or maybe to, to me, is I found a new thing. I, I don't know what you would call it, a gadget. Product. Product mm -hmm. that now I, I think is the greatest thing that I've ever found. So the first day we were in Yosemite, we were on a hike, and within about a mile distance, I developed tears in my hiking boots. I mean, to the point where I th I thought they were going to fall apart on the length of, of the hike that we were on, but we got through the hike just fine. That night, we went to an outdoor store to try to find uh, new boots. They didn't have really the ones I wanted. Well, right. And we should say, in defense of the boots, you always buy those a solo boots, which are so well made. But Matt, how long had you had that pair? And how many miles do you think you had hiked in, so in those? So I, I estimate that I probably hiked about 1,500 miles yes. in those boots. So boots generally don't last 1500 miles but you know they're broken in i love the feel of them so i hated to see that uh you know they were they were wearing out but i couldn't find a replacement pair in we were in the little town of mammoth lakes 
And so the guy trying to sell me boots, he, he said, you can always use shoe goo. <laughs> and I didn't know what shoe goo was. <laughs> but as sounds- soon as he said the words, I was sold. Like, right. I, like yes, I'm going to try shoe goo. Uh-huh. And it's like this, I don't know how to describe it other than it's kind of like really thick gel super glue. And I put this shoe goo, several layers of it, over the areas that were fraying on my boots. And man, it just, it healed my boots. It was like a miracle. <laughs> and it saved the rest of our trip because that was like our first hiking day that your boots split open. And so we were worried and we were in all kinds of small towns that wouldn't necessarily have replacement solo boots. Anyway, the shoe goo, so G-O-O, worked like a charm costs about six dollars oh, yeah. yeah and those are solo boots that model that i wear i think they're now selling for 280 but now i have a new pair of boots right because i just put the shoe goo over the holes and it's waterproof uh, you could build a house out of shoe goo i think it's worth investing in the six dollar shoe goo maybe you know throw it in with the rest of your gear if you're ever out on a hike or on a trip somewhere and you need some glue and It's also good for repairing tents. Uh, So if you have just like a small hole or fray in a tent, uh, if you have this with you when you're backpacking or camping, you can seal up holes. You you could do a lot of things. I'm just now exploring what I can do with Shugu. All right. Anyway, that's, that's uh, that's a tip for you. Yeah, that's our product review for today. All right, Matt, should we get started with Mailbag? We have some great questions. All right, Karen, what is our first question? Okay, this one comes from Christine, and she wrote, I'm looking for some advice as my husband and I near the empty nest stage of our lives. While we won't be able to fully retire when our youngest goes to college, we're both fortunate to be able to work remotely. We live just outside of Philadelphia, but would love to spend extended periods out west where we can spend more time exploring the parks and public lands in that part of the country. What cities or towns do you think would work as a home base for this purpose? Ideally, we are looking for access to amenities and a good internet connection during the week and relatively easy access to parks and other public lands on the weekends. And of course, great pizza and beer. You know, Christine, when we became empty nesters, I remember we dropped our son, he's our youngest child, off at college, uh, said our goodbyes, and we're driving away. And, and I remember thinking, we should probably drive at least a couple of blocks away before we run naked through the streets spraying strangers with champagne. <laughs> I, I just thought, if he saw us doing that, he might get the wrong impression. <laughs> Yeah, the police would find National Park travel brochures in our rental car and and wonder where these people are. You do have a good point, Matt. It does seem, it seems like it's going to be very sad. Leading up to it, it seems horribly sad. However, (laughs) once you kind of experience that freedom and the ability to go where you want, when you want, the sadness dissipates just a little bit. Yeah, it takes about five minutes. (laughs) Well, or two blocks of driving after you drop them off at college or wherever they go when they leave the nest. Uh, So we're going to assume that you are renting a house or condo, like an Airbnb type of thing, Mm -hmm. which is a a great way to sample an area. And then, you know, once once you're in the house you rent for a day or so, it feels like your, your own home base. The great thing about the potentially great thing about what you're doing, Christine, is you could check out a different area every year, right? Rent a house for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks in a different area and see what you like and what speaks to you. Because, of course, everyone likes something different about a city or a town. But we're going to give you a few suggestions. And and we came to these because we were, first of all, we were factoring in the cost, the cost of living. So for instance, Jackson, Wyoming would be an incredible home base, but it is really expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. It's very popular, which is what's driving up the cost. We also took into account how many tourists are there, like Moab. Moab's also a great town. I don't know that I would spend a month there because it's just so crowded. 
Right. It's just overrun with tourists. And we love to stay there for a few nights in a hotel. But, you know, living there would be a different story. And then, you know, we also consider the size of the town and, as you mentioned, amenities. So, for instance, Kanab, great location, you know, a jumping off point. But there are very few amenities in Kanab. It's a pretty small town. So, so we'll talk about our list. One place to consider is St. George, Utah. It's got about 100,000 people. And right there in town, you have the Snow Canyon State Park, uh, which is a great state park to hike in. We've been there and uh, another place that you can kind of get away from the crowds, even on a crowded day. Now, the location of St. George is ideal because it's under two hours from Las Vegas and it's under an hour from Zion National Park. Yeah, and it's about two and a half hours from the north rim of the Grand Canyon, which is a fantastic place to visit. And also in two and a half hours, you can be in Page, Arizona, where you have Antelope Canyons, you have Horseshoe Bend, you have the Glen Canyon National Recreation there. Right. Also, Valley of Fire State Park is close by. So St. George, Utah, great location for exploring a lot of public lands. Okay, now let's go to Colorado and talk for a minute about Durango, Colorado. Yeah, Durango is a nice little town. We've only driven through it and had lunch, but it, it seemed hip. It didn't did it? seem hip. <laughs> yeah, so it has good <laughs> hip factor. Uh, it's, it's not too big, not too small. It's about 20,000 people. And it's only about a half an hour away from Mesa Verde National Park. And you'd be very close to New Mexico, a little over two hours from Chaco Culture National Historical Park, which is an incredible public land to visit. About 90 minutes from the Four Corners area, another 90 minutes in another direction to Uray. And that drive from Durango to Uray is a really cool drive. Oh, my gosh. That million-dollar highway is incredible. And, of course, you have the Durango and Silverton narrow-gauge railroad right there. But Durango, again, location, 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 and amenities. Um, Some good little restaurants there. That would be a fun place to hang out for a couple weeks. Yeah, another place that you might want to consider is Flagstaff. Flagstaff, Arizona, it's got 75,000 people or so. Uh, It is a college town. It's a big college town. Northern Arizona is there and uh, a lot of students, which also, though, means that there's a lot of good restaurants and bars and fun places to go at night to uh, support the the student body. Right. We really like Flagstaff. And just about 30 miles to the south is Sedona, Arizona. And that's another amazing place that you could stay. The thing about Sedona is it is getting very crowded with tourists. I mean, it only has about 10,000 people, so it still is a small town. But the traffic can be a clogging nightmare (laughs) in Sedona. Of course, the hiking is incredible. We rented a house on Airbnb there for a couple nights and it backed up to the those red, red rock cliffs in Sedona. And it was beautiful. And we had such a good time. It was an incredible house. I'd like to rent that house again. We also had um, visitors one night when we were pulling in after a hike at dusk. We had, I think it was 21 Javelina. (laughs) walked uh, down the street right in front of the house. It was its own little herd, kind of like the, it was a herd, kind of like the bison herd that ran past our our truck. This was a javelina herd. Uh, they weren't running, uh, but they no, were. They were moseying. They were moseying. So that was kind of cool to see too. But Flagstaff is about ninety minutes from the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and also about ninety minutes in another direction from Petrified Forest National Park. There are also a ton of national monuments in the area, and some beautiful national forests with with incredible hiking trails. So that is another really great location to um, home base out of. Yeah, it's a good outdoorsy town. Definitely. You know, another outdoorsy town that you might want to consider is Mammoth Lakes in California. Now, in the winter, it's it's super crowded because it's uh, it's got a ski resort there and um, tons of snow. In the summer, when we visited it, so there's a ton of outdoor activities close by. It's only about 7,200 people. It has a, a very villagey feel to it. But this is located on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas. So there are a ton of very cool places to explore along Highway 395 there. Hiking trails and mountain lakes, and you're close to Yosemite's high country. 
Yeah, so you can go into Yosemite National Park and, and up there by Tuolumne Meadows, there's some great hikes. And then, of course, east of there, there's National Forest, tons of great trails to hike just east of Yosemite National Park. Right. We just released a Patreon episode about our stay in Mammoth Lakes a few weeks ago, all the things we did, and suggestions for things to see all along Highway 395. So um, that is available on our Patreon account. So those are some towns you might want to consider. Yes. And of course, there are a lot more, a lot of great towns out there to explore. But those are just a few suggestions. Thanks for your question, Christine. And let us know where you end up. All right, Karen, what do you have next for us? Our next one comes from Chelsea in Kellogg, Idaho. And she wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, next summer, we're going to start our multi-year journey to visit all the national parks in the lower 48 with our three young kids. We're going to begin with the parks in the West and drive to them, and we plan on camping in order to save money on lodging and food. Can you share some of your favorite campgrounds in the Western parks that we won't want to miss? You know, preparing the answer to this question, when we looked at all the campgrounds we stayed at, there are actually quite a few. And it's surprising because for those of you who've read our books, you know that when we did our original two-year journey to all the parks, we didn't camp at all. We stayed in hotels and lodges and cabins. And that's one thing that we do regret about that journey. Right. I suggested camping right right from the (laughs) beginning. And your response was, and and I think it, I get this right, is I don't camp. <laughs> I was a different person back then, Matt. <laughs> yes, yes, you were. <laughs> now we camp. Now we camp. And, and you're right, Chelsea. Not only does camping save a lot of money, but then you have the unique experience of spending the night outdoors in the park, uh, seeing the stars, maybe catching the sunrise. And of course, you know, a lot of the day trippers leave by dinner time. And so you, you also have a lot more solitude in the parks in the evenings and the early mornings. Right. And you can get to get up in the middle of the night and pee outside or, you know, wander a half a mile to the restroom in the camp uh, site and, uh, yeah, find the restroom. So there's that also. Right. Okay. So we just camped in Craters of the Moon National Monument in Idaho. And that was such an unusual landscape because the campground is in a lava flow. It's called Lava Flow Campground. Yeah, and before we got there, I was wondering how they did that. How would they make campsites in and amongst the lava? So there are 42 sites in the campground, all surrounded by lava rocks, but they have crushed lava in places where you put your tents and where the picnic table is. The crushed up lava was actually comfortable to walk on and put the tent down. And so, yeah, it it actually worked out really well. Well, it did. And then there's still all these bigger boulders that are not crushed that sort of separate the campsite. So so everyone has a little bit of privacy. It's very unique. Now, one thing about this is this campground is always first come, first served. And, you know, heading there, we were coming up from Ely, Nevada, and we were nervous about getting a spot, as we should have been, because we got there at about 3 o'clock. It was probably 75% fall. And by 5 o'clock, and again, this is a Tuesday in September. It was completely full. Yeah, we panicked uh, as as we were driving there because we also realized that we were coming from the West and we lost an hour. Right. And so all of a sudden, it was an hour later in the day than we thought. Uh, so we you know we had to drive like a hundred miles an hour, passing every camper on the highway, knowing that those campers were our competition (laughs) for the evening. Right. Now, for us, if we would not have gotten a site, it's not that big of a deal. Our plan was to drive another hour, hour and a half to Idaho Falls and get a hotel room. But for you, Chelsea, and your family, that is a definite worry. So our suggestion would be you might look for campgrounds that take reservations so you don't have to worry about getting a spot and what's going to happen if you don't get a spot, especially you know, since you have kids and especially now that the parks are so crowded. And some other things you might want to consider when you're booking online are, are things like the privacy of the site, if there's trees and boulders, do they have bathrooms with flush toilets? Now, a lot of this stuff you can find on recreation.gov when you're booking the campsites. And one of the good things about recreation.gov 
is a lot of times this campsite itself, not just the campground, but the site itself, there's a little picture. So you can get a sense of, of how big it is. That's right. Now, when we are reserving a campsite, they also have on recreation.gov, they have a, a map of the campground with the sites numbered. And you can visually see where your site is. So we try to choose a site that's close to a bathroom, but not too close. We don't want to be right next to the bathroom, but we also would like a short walk. And the other thing too is a lot of times they will list the tent pad measurements and you really want to pay attention to that to make sure that your tent is going to fit. Because oftentimes when they list these measurements like 10 by 12, it's because there are trees in the way or boulders and it's not possible to put a bigger tent there. So you want to make sure that your tent fits on the site. Uh, some other things to be aware of at these campgrounds, uh, when they have bare food storage boxes, you definitely want to use those, even to the extent that you, you take food out of your car and put them in those uh, storage units. There are campfire regulations, there are quiet hours. We've generally seen pretty good behavior in these campgrounds when we're there, but you know, there are times when people feel like, well, this is my only time I'm going to camp this summer, so I'm going to have a big raging campfire right during a fire ban, right in a forest that is vulnerable to wildfires. And, and you got to be um, aware of the regulations and, and following those. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so we'll talk about a few that we liked. We camped in Glacier National Park in Montana, and we stayed at Fish Creek Campground. Now, that's in the West Glacier area, right on Lake McDonald. Yeah, that was a, a great campsite, but there are others in Glacier National Park. There's the St. Mary area. So we also had reservations for St. Mary Campground. Now, to be honest with you, where our site, reserve site, was located was not pretty. There were no trees. It looked a little weedy. So St. Mary is not as pretty as um, some of the others, but it is a good location as far as where you are in the park. One thing, though, to know about that many glacier in St. Mary area there is that they do have a lot of bear activity. There was one time we had uh, a reservation there, and when we got there, they informed us that it was only open to hard side campers because there was bear activity in the area. Be aware if you don't have a hard side camper that some of these areas with bear activity, sometimes that the, they close them. So a good option is to stay on the west side. Doesn't seem to be as many bears over there. So Fish Creek Campground and Apgar Campground, both big campgrounds right there. One more thing, another advantage to camping in the national parks that now have day-use reservations is you don't have to hassle with getting a day-use reservation if you have a campground site reserved. So that's a plus. Yeah, because you're already in the park. Right. At Mount Rainier National Park, we camped this summer at Cougar Rock, and that was a pretty campground. It was very pretty, very forested. Our, our campsite felt somewhat private. And the location is fantastic because it sits very close to the drive up to Paradise, which is where a lot of people want to go. So when we woke up in the morning, we drove up to Paradise and we were able to get a parking spot. Usually it's extremely crowded. So the location of Cougar Rock cannot be beat. Right. Uh, one of the prettiest campgrounds that we've ever stayed at is Sentinel Campground in Cedar Grove area of Kings Canyon National Park. That was a beautiful campground. I loved that campground. Huge trees. It was really, really long. And at the very back of it was a creek. Absolutely beautiful. One of our favorite spots ever. The entire Cedar Grove area was closed all this summer because the uh, road out there, the highway was damaged, severely damaged. But hopefully by next summer, it will be reopened. So check that one out. 
Also in Joshua Tree National Park, we've camped at the Indian Cove Campground. It has about 100 campsites. Um, they've got vault toilets, uh, no water. There is water available at the small ranger station that you pass about two miles before you get to the campground. Uh, what's cool about this is there are a lot of boulders. It's like, guys, it's like this huge playground made of boulders. I loved this campground. We stayed in two different sites. We had to move because we couldn't get the same reservation for two nights in a row. Both of them, as Matt said, huge boulders, so unique and special and private. The only thing I wasn't a fan of is no flush toilets, no bathroom, just some outhouses placed <laughs> placed around. So there's that. But really charming, really unusual campground, Indian Cove. Also in Death Valley National Park, we've uh, camped at the Furnace Creek Campground. Now, it's not very scenic. Uh, <laughs> you know, Death Valley is a pretty exposed area anyway. There were a lot of concrete or paved pads. That didn't bother me all that much. Because, you know, sometimes when you're camping a lot, and on that particular trip, we were camping multiple campsites in a row. Personally, I think it's kind of nice to have a concrete pad <laughs> Uh, and not just be living in the dirt all the time. So, you know, it's it's a personal preference. I know you didn't like it that much. I thought it was really awful looking because it's literally concrete and you're staring at your neighbors on all sides. However, a couple good things about it was the location is fantastic right next to the Furnace Creek Visitor Center. The bathrooms were super nice. One rookie mistake that we made, we didn't even think to check this, is we were basically across from the dump station. <laughs> yeah. And we learned a lot about the dump station on, on that visit. Matter of fact, uh, you know, we, we were a little put out that we were so close to the dump station. And after a while, we just embraced it. We set up our lawn chairs facing the dump station. I think we got a beer or, or three uh, and just sat there and critiqued uh, the dumpers as they came through. And I got to say, there, there's a wide range of skill that you'll see at the dump station when you've seen, you know, 30 RVs come by and right. do their business. Right. And there were some horror stories, yes. like like kids playing around mm -hmm. the, the outtake hose and touching it and looking at it. But <laughs> that's but... okay. By the fourth beer, we, we were ready to give advice. So it did provide a lot of entertainment, but just note, Chelsea, you might not want to stay right next to the dump station if you have a choice. <laughs> All right, we're going to mention two quickly that we have not actually stayed in, but we have been through many times, and they are so cool. One of our favorite looking campsites is Canyonlands. This is the Needles District. I believe now it's called Needles Campground. It used to be called Squaw Flats. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, that, Squaw Flats. So if you have if you're looking at an old map, you, you might see that they, they've changed the name of it. Mm. Yeah, these are uh, beautiful campsites. Uh, we've tried to camp there before. It was in March, right before the reservation system started on March 15th. And when we were there, first come, first serve. We didn't get there early enough, but yeah, I'd like to go back and do that. We would. We had parked there. I think there's a loop A and a loop B. We've parked in both of these loops and set off on hikes from there. And what's cool, not only are these campsites really cool looking, but the hikes right from your campsite are amazing. There are canyons and there was a hill we had to climb using chains. And I mean, like just really fun. Again, this is like a playground. Right, so. a, lot of, a lot of slick rock mm. uh, trails right from the, the campground there. And you can, from that campground, hike from your site to Chesler Park and the Joint Trail Loop. It adds about, I don't know, mile, mile and a half more than if you parked at Elephant Hill Trailhead. I think that's each way. It but, makes it considerably longer, but it's cool. Yeah, and we've done that before, mm -hmm. so it's 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 doable. Right. The last one we wanted to mention, if you get a chance to stay here in our home state park of North Cascades National Park, there is the Colonial Creek Campground. This is right off of Highway 20, the, the main highway that runs through the park. It's nestled in an old growth forest right next to the beautiful turquoise Diablo Lake. 
Yeah, that's a beautiful area of uh, North Cascades National Park complex. Yes, and there are some great hikes that also start from that campground. So we would highly recommend that when you visit North Cascades. Yeah, so there's a lot of great campgrounds in the national parks, but if you get nixed out on reservations, you also have the national forest. I know there are usually public lands adjacent to these national parks. And state parks, too. When we went back to Tucson to visit Saguaro again, there are no campgrounds in that park. So we stayed at Catalina State Park, and that is a beautiful park. Lots of Saguaros there, too. Plus, not only were there nice bathrooms, but there were showers. And you don't realize how important that is until you're on your fourth day of camping. Or how important it is to those sleeping next to you, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Chelsea, we hope you and your family have a wonderful time exploring the parks. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of great adventures ahead of you. All right, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, this one comes from Kat. That's K-A-T, Kat. And she wrote... I will soon be going for a 17-day Christmas round trip out west with the objective of seeing some of California's most unique desert landscapes before they're destroyed by extreme weather events. Several years in a row, I've put off this trip because of bad weather closing roads, but I can delay no longer. My question is, if you could recommend any public lands or hikes in Southern California, Vegas area and south that are particularly good to visit in the winter and empty. I'm not a fan of crowds. Also, I'm a big geology fan, a science teacher, so please recommend your geology favorites. Geology favorites. Never gotten that question before. (laughs) All of a sudden, Matt, you like sparked up. Yeah, yeah. No, I I am covering the geology desk today, so I'll I'll throw in my geology tips when when I think they're appropriate, Okay, good. Well, first of all, Kat, we think that you are smart to get this trip in sooner rather than later because, as we have all seen, the extreme flooding that's been happening down there is just wild. Yeah, it's been a bad couple of years. You've got floods, you've got fires. Hopefully, this is an aberration in the weathered pattern. Some people believe it's it's the new normal. I don't know, but yes, you're right. It's it's a good time to go because you know these are fragile areas, and uh, who knows how long they'll be the way they are today. Right. And one more thing to consider: there is another kind of dire issue that's going on down there, and that's the um, the iconic Western Joshua trees are dying from the worst drought in more than a thousand years. And as you said, Matt, there's the issue of wildfires and also development. All those things are causing Joshua trees to die at a very alarming rate. So, you know, note to everyone, you you probably want to get out and see, see these areas before it's too late. Okay, but let's talk about specific recommendations. Uh, we're going to start in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know if that's where you're flying in and out of, but it's certainly a convenient airport because so many cities fly directly to Las Vegas. So starting in Las Vegas, one place that you want to consider is Death Valley National Park. Absolutely, especially for a geology fan. Now, currently, as of this recording, we're at the um, end of September 2023, Death Valley is currently closed because of the record rainfall they got from Tropical Storm Hillary. Now, they have on their website, they are expecting to partially open. That's tentatively scheduled for October 15th. So hopefully, Kat, by Christmas time, fingers crossed, they will have most of the park and the trails reopened. But as of now, that's unknowable. Now, if when you're in the park, there are several amazing geology places to visit. One of our favorites is that Badwater Basin. Now, there's not a lot to do there, but it is cool just to park and walk out into the basin. And there's cool formations, salt formations in the basin. Yeah, that's remarkable. Another um, place that is also great for geology fans is Devil's Golf Course. You don't want to miss that. And of course, you have, you know, the beautiful artist palette, You've got the Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, so many things to check out in Death Valley National Park, along with some great hikes. 
Right. One hike you might want to consider now, it is it is popular, probably even in the off-season, is Mosaic Canyon. Last mm-hmm. time we went there, there were, there were quite a few people in the parking lot, but that's a cool hike to go on. That is. And just note, when you're hiking Mosaic Canyon, you'll hike a little more than a mile into the canyon, and then you'll come to what seems like an impassable boulder jam. But there is a way around it. You can scramble up on the rocks to the left and bypass it definitely want to do that because the hike continues and a lot of people turn around at that point but if you continue on you will have more solitude back there and it's very cool another hike is the golden canyon slash gower gulch loop so that's two different hikes but it it forms a loop and we always do that hike when we're we're in the park we do the entire loop uh you can also access that and now it makes it a little bit longer hike you can access it from Sabrisky Point, you can hike down into that canyon, do the loop, and then back up to Zabriskie Point. That makes for a pretty long hike, though. Yeah, and you've got to hike back up to Zabriskie Point. So one thing you could do is just drive to Zabriskie Point. It's an incredible viewpoint. Look at the view, then drive down to the trailhead for Golden Canyon, and you could do the Golden Canyon Gower Gulch Loop from there. Both great options. And another hike that's great for geology fans is the Ubihibi Crater Trail. Right. Now, this goes around the rim of the Ubihibi Crater. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it. And, and Karen, did you know that this is an unusual geological formation because this is a Mara volcano? So a Mara volcano is the result of an explosion or, or the venting of steam instead of lava. So this happened about two to 7,000 years ago. You know, for geology fans <laughs> out there, uh, it's a different kind of volcano crater. I actually didn't know that, Matt. Yeah. And We're- so you can, you can hike around it. Mm-hmm. It's about a half mile wide, about 700 feet deep. Wow. All right. Thank you for that. Now, Kat, we don't know what the crowds are like at Death Valley at Christmas time. Could be very crowded, could be fairly empty. But the nice thing about Death Valley is it's such a huge park that you can find a lot of solitude. We've been there many, many times. And the only times we've really found congestion would be at the parking lots and the parking lots for like Zabriskie Point and for Mosaic Canyon, the the trailhead there. So yes, we have found those to be crowded. But once you start hiking, the the areas are so vast that you will not be hiking in a crowd of people. Right. Once you get like an eighth of a mile down the trail, you're, you're seeing people every now and then. But for a lot of the hike, you're kind of by yourself. Exactly. So we do have, I know you you mentioned also in your email that you um, have listened to all of our podcast episodes and that you are a big researcher. So uh, we do have a full episode on Death Valley and you probably have already researched a lot of cool places to go, but that would be our suggestion for your first stop on this road trip. Another area that's worth seeing is the Mojave National Preserve. This is also pretty much a, a stop we make every time we're in the Las Vegas area. Right. So this is south of Death Valley. Now, unfortunately, Mojave has also had heavy rainfall from Hillary. And some of the roads currently are four-wheel drive only. So it's all laid out on the website. Again, hopefully by Christmas, things will be back to normal so you can access more of the park. But there are some really unique things to do in Mojave. Right. One thing that we haven't done, we've tried to do it a couple times, but it just hasn't worked out from timing and, and being able to get tickets, is the Mitchell Caverns. Now, this is in the Providence Mountain State Recreation Area that is adjacent to the preserve. Yeah, it's weird. It's actually tucked right in there. It sits right inside Mojave National Preserve. It's only open on Friday through Sunday, and they have two cave tours per day. I think we were there on a Wednesday or something. We're, we're always... <laughs> in the parks on the wrong possible days. And you can buy tickets ahead of time, and that is recommended. Yes, it's very popular to do the Mitchell Caverns Cave Tour. So buy your tickets ahead of time. If it happens that you are there on those three days, definitely check out the cave tour. Another thing you could do that's similar is uh, Mojave has a lava tube. 
Yeah, it has a lava tube. I'm really excited to do that because this is kind of the summer of the lava tubes. I, I don't know how many lava tubes we've been in this summer, but um, in all seriousness, um, I think I've been in my last lava tube. Okay, well, someone who's interested in geology would love a lava tube. I'm just saying. Our favorite area in Mojave is the hole in the wall area. There is such a cool hike there called the Rings Loop Trail. And this is, I mean, it's not for everyone because there is a tiny section of it that's like a slot canyon. And it's called the Rings Trail because they have installed these metal rings into the rock of this little slot canyon to help you climb up. So it's very short. It's not really scary, but you need a little agility. <laughs> yeah, you do. And, and maybe somebody who you're comfortable pushing you up from the rear. <laughs> Well, it depends how tall you are. You were tall enough, you didn't have any problem. I, being shorter, I had a little trouble reaching the next ring and getting my feet where they needed to be, so you gave me a little boost. I think probably a lot of people could just do it on their own, however. But this definitely, definitely, you want to go up the rings trail. You you don't want to be coming down that slot canyon. Right, so if you just want to do the rings loop trail, you want to park at the visitor center and Take that trail clockwise, so you come around into the Slot Canyon and you're going up, but we always do the Barber Peak Loop Trail and then do the rings at the very end, and when we do that loop, we're doing Barber Peak Loop counterclockwise. Right. And that's a, a longer trail. You know, you're going to need a couple hours for that, but it's incredibly beautiful out there. And we'll just mention, too, a couple more places, the Kelso Sand Dunes. If you like sand dunes, that's a fun mountain of sand <laughs> to climb yeah, to the so top. Yeah, it's so romantic, especially <laughs> on warm days, because <laughs> no, by be the time you get to the top, you're covered in sand and sweating, and usually wondering why you got married in the first place. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Cat at Christmas time, it's probably going to be beautiful. There are some incredible views from up there. The other thing we wanted to mention too is Mojave has the largest Joshua tree forests out of any place in the country. Now, these are located sort of on the eastern side of the park. There are a lot of dirt roads you can take to see these Joshua trees, and that's a cool thing also. Something else you need to know when you go to this area, there are really no services. So take uh, plenty of water. Make sure you have a full tank of gas. So yeah, when in doubt, fill up your tank. But you will definitely have solitude in Mojave National Preserve. Now, one new national monument that we wanted to mention that sits right next to Mojave across the state line in Nevada is called Aviquame. And we were in Las Vegas last April, right after this had become a national monument, and we were able to uh, check it out and go on a cool hike there. Right. So they have conjoined uh, the, this huge area of public land. So it goes from the Mojave National Preserve to this Aviquame that then connects to Lake Mead National Recreation Area to the east. And in this new national monument, there is a cool hike called Grapevine Canyon Trail. And it has uh, incredible petroglyphs. And then you can hike kind of back into a little canyon. Yes, that is very cool to see. If you want to just see the petroglyphs, it's a stroll from the parking lot. The, the hike back into the canyon, the only thing we'll say is after we saw the petroglyphs and we continued on, we you come to this kind of huge granite hill, if you will. And it looks very intimidating. And I was ready to turn around. But actually, we forged forward. If you walk up on the right side, it's not as scary as it looks. And once you climb up this hill, the downside on the back is easy and you can continue your hike through this canyon. So do not be um, do not be alarmed by this large slab of granite. <laughs> Yeah, so if that's south of the Las Vegas area, if you're wondering ex the exact directions, you can uh, Google Grapevine Canyon Trail. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not particularly hard to find. Now, you cannot go to the California desert and not visit Joshua Tree National Park. You know, this iconic park with the Joshua trees and these huge rock boulders everywhere. It really is unlike any other park. One of our favorite hikes there is the Black Rock Canyon Panorama Loop. It takes you up to a viewpoint where you're essentially looking, I think, west towards 
the California desert, beautiful overlook, but also you're hiking through a lot of Joshua trees also. That's that's a nice hike. Well, it is. And because this Black Rock Canyon area is less, is less popular, probably because it's less well-known than the other sections of the park. So there are no backup lines to get in. Very few people that we saw. So that's a great place if you want to get away from the crowds. So many great hikes. A few that we have done and loved are Ryan Mountain, Lost Horse Mine Loop, and the Boy Scout Trail. Yeah, and that Ryan Mountain is a little strenuous, but when you get to the top of that, also uh, incredible views. I think those views are like 360 degrees uh, of the area. Absolutely. And a few shorter trails that you won't want to miss would be Hidden Valley, Arch Rock, Skull Rock, Choya Cactus Garden. You know, so many um, just cool little hikes, not little hikes, short hikes, where you can see very amazing rock formations. And again, we don't know what the crowds are like at, at Christmas time, but it's a big park. And I would imagine that once you're out on these trails, even if there are a lot of people in the park, you're going to be by yourself most of the time. Yeah, I mean, we've gone at some of the most popular times during spring break, and it was manageable. So you, sh- you should be okay at Christmas time. You know, one thing I wanted to mention in the same area, I went to Palm Springs on a girls trip last February, and we did this hike. And this is at the Pioneer Town Mountains Preserve. It's called Indian Loop Trail at Pipes Canyon. It's about a six and a half mile loop. It is beautiful and no people out there because, of course, everyone's in the national park. And one more note, there's a very fun bar that's out there in Pioneer Town called Pappy and Harriet's. Huge bar, good food. They specialize in barbecue. Just very fun. Lots going on out there. So don't miss Pappy and Harriet's if if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> Are you sure you hiked? I think you guys just went to Pampian Harriet's. (laughs) I think you read the description of the trail on all trails and then went to Pampian Harriet's. Is that right? Shh, don't tell anyone. But I guess my, my point of mentioning that is there are so many great other public lands in these areas besides what's considered a national park or a national park site. So depending on what you find as far as road closures in the national parks, maybe you would have time to add on some other um, some other public lands. And not too far from Joshua Tree is the Anza Borrego Desert State Park. We haven't been there, but we've heard uh, really good things about it. That's right. So check that out. See if that looks of interest to you, because lots of people have mentioned it to us as a place that is a kind of a must see and one of the one of the premier state parks in the country. All right, Kat. Well, thank you for your question. And we hope you have a wonderful Christmas trip. Really can't think of a better way to spend Christmas than out in the parks. Okay, Karen, what's our next question? Okay, this one comes from Roberta, and she said, Could you do an episode on how you research a park? You seem to find much more info than I find on the National Park website. I've listened to 130 episodes, but maybe I've missed the one about what you use to get all of your info. Thanks for your work. Okay, well, the one where we talk about planning our national park trips was episode number 65. So there's some good information in that one. Our main tips are, one, always visit the National Park Service website for that particular park. I mean, that's kind of your starting point to get not only the information and the facts, but but current information like closures or warnings or something like that. I always go to the Plan Your Visit tab. So there's a lot of, of good sub-tabs under that. So that's where you would start. Exactly. And also on that same note, right before you go to the park, look at it again and look at the alerts because there are always road closures, trail closures that might happen the day you're going, the day before. So, so check the website again right before your visit. And then it's just simply Googling top things to do in whatever national park you're going to or how many days to spend in that particular park. 
And, you know, there's there's just a ton of blogs out there where people talk about their experience. What I do is, because we break our responsibilities up, I research and plan, and Matt is the packer and make sure we have everything we need. So when I'm researching places we want to go, I do a lot of Googling and I read a lot of blog posts. And then you can kind of get an idea of if you're looking for, let's say, the top 10 things to do in Arches, you're going to see the themes reoccurring and reoccurring. And then when it comes to a specific hike, if you find a hike that looks good, then you Google just the name of the hike. You can look at all trails, see how many miles it is, read the recent trip reports. So it's just a lot of, of Googling on the internet. Yeah, and, and there are times when people, they'll write blog posts and, you know, the 10 best things to do in a certain area and they'll talk about a hike that, you know, is it's great to hike this trail in May. Well, we know that the road to that trail isn't even open in May, right? <laughs> right. And so you got to check multiple sources for information. Sure. And of course, you can also be very specific. So if you're into bike riding or you're into birding or something specific like that, then you that's what you would Google and get information on that. One more thing, this is tip number three, when you're going to these places, you also want to see what else is close by. We can tell you from experience that one of the worst things is when you get home from a trip and you realize you missed this really amazing thing that was right next to the park. Yeah, and we're getting better with that over the last few years of finding the other cool stuff to do that's in and around our primary destination. Right. So the National Park Service has a great page where they list all of the NPS sites by state. And we'll put the link in our show notes. So you can Google, let's say you're going to Arizona, NPS sites in Arizona. Usually this um, NPS site is the first one that comes up and it will list everything in Arizona. So then you can do more research, figure out where those sites are. Of course, there's also Bureau of Land Management sites and National Forests. So I guess our overall point, Roberta, is research, research, research. Yep. Check multiple sources for information. Okay, Karen, any other letters there in the mailbag? I, th I think I see one <laughs> right at the bottom of the bag. One last one from Nicole. And she wrote, I'm assuming prior to your quest to hit all the national parks that you visited some parks previously. I'm curious if you went back to previously visited sites to include them on your two-year journey. Well, yeah, when we started our quest to go to all the national parks, we started over completely, even though we had been to some. So we didn't count the ones that we had already been to. So we wanted within that journey, if you will, to, to see them all. For us, that wasn't that big of a deal because we hadn't been to very many national parks yet. I think we had only been to the three Washington national parks. Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Glacier, and Rocky Mountain. So yes, we revisited all those. And we had a couple of must-dos in every park. Right. We had only thought far enough ahead that we wanted to go to all the national parks. We had no idea what we were going to do once we were there. So we quickly had to come up with, well, like, are we just going to cross into the border and say we've been there and that's it? So we came up with a few things. First of all, we wanted to get the park map and newsletter, take our photo in front of the park sign, get our passport book stamped. We called that taking care of business. And then do some meaningful activity in each park. Most of the time, that was a hike. Now, occasionally, it was a ranger-led tour, for instance, in the cave parks or a couple of the water parks. You know, we did um, ranger-led tours there. The only, probably the only parks that were not applicable were Kobuk Valley and Gates of the Arctic in Alaska. Those were basically flyover, land, quickly take a photo. But other than that, we did a hike or a tour. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what we did. And I think we accomplished that in, in all the parks. Yes. And we still have all of the what we call park maps. But, Matt, I found out that um, that's not actually the official name. What's it called? A brochure? It's a very strange. It's called a Unigrid Oh, the Unigrid. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so here's my brief history channel for today. In 1977, the National Park Service 
collaborated with a designer to create a standardized, recognizable way to distribute information to park visitors. So every park site has now a unigrid and they all feature you know that recognizable black band the familiar font types and then inside there's a map or an image to help you plan your visit but surprisingly prior to 1977 there was no consistent style and so i guess parks just handed out you know whatever they created in their offices yeah that's pretty cool and whoever did that uh they did a good job because it's it's stood the test of time it's now what 50 almost 50 years old and i i think it still looks fresh it looks very fresh they did a fantastic job and the thing is too You know, we have kept all the maps. Now, we haven't kept the newsletters because obviously those are somewhat timely and they also took up a ton of space. But we have all the maps. And unless the park gains some acreage, the park maps are not going to change very much at all. Right, right. I mean, they make some small changes. Sometimes they'll they'll add a campground or whatever. But yeah, it's it's fun to have those. And we still get them. We go to the parks and we still (laughs) throw them on the map desk in our own personal visitor center here. Um, We got to organize those one of these days. But it is a good idea when planning your park visit, you can pull up the park map on the park website. There's a little tab that says maps and you can look at that ahead of time before you get the actual Unigrid to kind of plan your visit, how you're getting in, how you're getting out and points of interest along the way. But in summary, here's our tip. The next time you go through the entrance booth of a national park, ask them for a Unigrid instead of the park map. (laughs) It's kind of like a code. Then they'll know. They'll know that you know something about the national parks. That's right. There you go. All right. So this has been fun. We love our mailbag. If you have any questions for future mailbag episodes, please email those to us at Matt and Karen Smith at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us today and a shout out to our listeners in Sweden where our podcast is ranked number 18. That's kind of a surprise. That is a surprise. I think we need to go to Sweden though and thank them in person. (laughs) Oh, I'd like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They have national parks that we can visit there. There's dozens of them. Yeah. I think they have like 30 national parks. That would be amazing to see some of those. But in the short term, we'll be back next week with an episode about Great Basin National Park and the nearby historic town of Ely, Nevada, where we like to stay when visiting the park. See you then. Mm -hmm.